On, um, on June 17, 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof entered Emmanuel African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in downtown Charleston. He walked into a Bible study, and then he opened fire uh, with his handgun, and he killed nine people there. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Reverend Clementa Pickney, Cynthia Hurd, Tywanza Sanders, Myra Thompson, Ethel Lee Lance, Reverend Daniel Simmons, Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, and Susie Jackson. At the trial uh, of Dylan Roof, family members of those slain got to address the gunmen. And one by one, they offered forgiveness and prayed for his soul, even as they described uh, the searing pain of their loss. This public display of grace and forgiveness really shocked the nation. And it begged the question, and it begs it now, What does it mean to forgive somebody? How is it possible to forgive something or someone like this? What does it mean that Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins? First, Christians believe in the power and costliness of forgiveness. They believe in the power and the costliness of forgiveness. And it is important for us to be clear what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness is not calling evil okay. Okay, forgiveness is not downplaying or uh, dismissing a serious offense as no big deal. It's not that. And it's certainly not the same thing as forgetting, right? You've maybe heard it said forgive and forget, but those things often don't go together. The forgiving person feels, feels pain. He or she feels pain because sin hurts. Somebody hurts you. Right? Somebody says something harsh or cruel to you. Somebody assaults you physically. Somebody takes something uh, that is yours. Right? All of this hurts. And a forgiving person feels that hurt. When a line gets crossed or when something is done to you that should not be done, you feel anger. That's right. When something special is taken away from you, you experience sadness. And that's right. To forgive someone does not mean that you must deny those feelings or turn them off. In fact, if you turn these feelings off, or you brush over them, or you skate over them, or you suppress them, you can actually curtail and really impede uh, your ability to extend true and total forgiveness to your wrongdoer. You actually hamstring the possibility of forgiveness. I know this from my own personal experience. Uh, Somebody uh, has really hurt me. and I shortcutted uh, the feeling process. I said, I forgive you. But I realized months, years, even decades later, 
that I was still angry and sad and resentful and that I actually hadn't really forgiven this person. You know, we could say, well, why hadn't you? And the truth is, is that um, I hadn't fully... um, I hadn't fully experienced the emotions that I was supposed to experience at the moment. I sort of uh, put a cap on it. Uh, I was emotionally dishonest. It was kind of like offering a $1,000 forgiveness for like a million-dollar problem. Is a way of, I might put it. You know? And that's not going to work for you or for the other party. This is the irony. Right? In order to forgive, you really do need to be in touch with your pain. You need to take sin seriously. You need to be conscious of how it affects you and has affected you. So you need to take stock of the damage. You've got to be emotionally honest. What does this look like or sound like in practice? What often looks like feels like anger. It often looks like feels like sadness. Being emotionally honest sounds like you crossed the line. But you took something from me, and it's really upsetting me. It really bothers me. That's what emotional honesty sounds like. It sounds like you did this, or you said this, and it hurts, and here's how. You've got to be able to acknowledge that. You have to be able uh, to articulate that. It sounds like Nadine Collier, the, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, who said to Dylan Roof, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. See, that forgiveness is not at the expense of emotional honesty. She's acknowledging pain. She's talking about it. She's letting him know. She's emotionally honest. So is the sister of the pain Middleton doctor said, I acknowledge that I am very angry. I acknowledge that I am very angry, but we have no room for hating. So I forgive you, and I pray God for your soul. Being honest about the pain is a critical first step in being able to forgive it. As I said, forgiveness is not downplaying sin. It's not saying it's no big deal. It's not saying whatever. Right? A forgiving person feels pain, knows the cost of sin, is able to give voice to it, able to acknowledge it, is emotionally honest. And this really is a critical first step uh, in being able to forgive. So I want to ask, put this before you, if you are having problems maybe forgiving somebody, there's a good chance it's be, you've not, you're trying to maybe skip this step. Why are you so angry? Right? Why are you so sad? Have you uh, been able to articulate it? Have you been able to sort of write out your complaint? Right? This is what is bothering me so much. Right? I'd encourage you to do that. It, it really is, in a lot of ways, step number one towards really moving towards forgiveness. Don't skip it. Step number two, okay, if, a, if a forgiving person is emotionally honest and knows the pain of sin has really counted its cost, 
was able to articulate, yeah, this is the problem. This is why I hurt, right? A forgiving person decides, secondly, to absorb the cost. A forgiving person absorbs the cost. A forgiving person decides on their own accord not to make the other person pay the price. Okay? This decision cannot be manipulated or coerced. You don't manipulate or coerce forgiveness, right? It is, if it's given, it's given freely. It must be a free choice. But, of course, forgiveness is never free. Right? It must be a free choice, but it's never free. All sin is damaging to some degree. I think all sin takes a toll on you and others. It's costly. Sin in somebody has got to pay for it. And the forgiving person says, I will pay for it, not you. I'll pay for it. I will absorb the cost. It's like, sure, you broke it. And sure, it's your sin and it's your fault. But I will pay the damages. I will suffer the loss. I'm not going to make you pay for it. I have got it covered. Well, if you break my computer, it's going to cost maybe $1,000 to fix. Right? Making the wrong thing right costs about that much. Cost of the computer. Now, either you are going to pay the damages of my broken computer and we can move on, or I'm going to pay the damages for that broken computer uh, and we can move on. But either way, somebody has got to pay. And the forgiving person in this example says, you broke it, but I will buy it. You broke my computer. It's your debt to pay, but I've got it covered. And when you see forgiveness in this light for what it really is, is paying the price for somebody else's sin, absorbing the cost, not making them pay, what you begin to see very quickly is that forgiveness is not for weaklings. Forgiveness takes strength. Forgiveness takes power. To be able to pay down somebody else's debt means that you are rich. You obviously have some resources. You obviously have some deep reserves uh, to be able to do this. You obviously have some spiritual wealth that you can draw from and draw on to be able to pay somebody else's debt. This is, you know, freeing people from their debt, lifting them out of a pit by covering the cost of their sins. This is not something that weak people do. This is something that only strong, spiritually rich people can do. Forgiveness feels first, right? And then it is an act of free will to free someone from the debt of their sin, to pay its price, to suffer its loss. But thirdly, sort of finally, as we sort of think about the power and costliness of forgiveness, a forgiving person has the power to free the wrongdoer from shame. A forgiving person has the power to free the wrongdoer from shame. Y'all, sin enslaves us. 
Jesus says so himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It puts us in a debt of sorts, and it also has the power to define us. Sin, you become a sinner. You lie, you become a liar. You murder, you become a murderer. But something happens uh, when you forgive. When you forgive someone, you're not just canceling their debt. You're actually calling them by a new name, forgiven. When you forgive a sinner, you refuse to let that sin define this person before you. You refuse to let his or her sins define them, this, this person. You see them as more than just their sin. This is powerful. I'm reminded of a woman named Mary Johnson, whose son, uh, Laramian, Laramian, yeah, Laramian, was murdered by a man named O'Shea. O'Shea went to serve uh, a 25-year prison term. He says, the court proceedings were a blur. I separated myself. It was just my physical shell going through the motions. For years, I didn't even acknowledge what I'd done and would lay the blame on everyone else. I didn't want to hold myself accountable for taking someone's life. You blame everyone else because you don't want to deal with the pain. Several years after Laramian was killed, Mary decided to visit her son's killer in prison. She had been growing in her desire to know O'Shea, right, the man who killed her son, and to extend forgiveness to him. O'Shea at first refused. I don't want to see you. Do not come. So Mary visited nine months later and tried again. And this time O'Shea relented and he agreed to meet with her. They sat across the table from one another. Mary talked about her son and she tried to learn some things about O'Shea. When the time was up for O'Shea to go back to his cell, they stood up to shake hands. But overwhelmed with emotion, Mary collapsed and O'Shea caught her in his arms and they sort of held each other in an embrace. When O'Shea left the room, Mary just sat there and she repeated to herself over and over again, I just hugged the man who killed my son. I just hugged the man who killed my son. And Mary says in this interview that you can listen to, she says, and I quote, that's when I began to feel this movement in my feet. It moved up my legs and it just moved up my body. When I felt it leave me, I instantly knew that all the anger and hatred and animosity I had in my heart for you, speaking to a sheriff, all the anger in my heart for you for 12 years was over. I had totally forgiven you. See, Mary had refused to let this single, albeit horrific, act define this man before her. O'Shea committed murder, but Mary no longer called him murderer. She called him by his name, O'Shea. And this act of forgiveness liberated him, even when he was in prison. It really did redefine him. It really did change his life. 
So much so that when he was released from prison 17 years later, he moved into the house next door to Mary's because he just wanted to be near her. At the end of the interview, which is on StoryCorps, NPR StoryCorps, look this up, okay? The end of the interview is recorded on Mary's porch, and it goes like this. O'Shea, regardless of how much you see me stumble out here, you still believe in me. You still have the confidence that I'm going to do the right thing, and you still tell me to keep moving forward no matter what. Mary, you know, I didn't see Laramian graduate, but you're going to college, and I'll be able to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married, but hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. Our relationship is beyond belief. O'Shea, I agree. I love you, lady. Mary, I love you too, son. Y'all, a forgiving person does not just have the power to free someone from the debt of their sins, to absorb the cost. A forgiving person has the power to free someone from their shame, to call them by a new name, to redefine and redirect and really renew. These sort of steps of feeling, of absorbing debt, of freeing someone from shame really are the power and the costliness of forgiveness, just sort of point number one. Okay, but point number two is when we say that Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're not just talking about its power and we're not just talking about its costliness. When Christians say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, what they're saying is that I believe that my sins are forgiven. I believe that Jesus has forgiven me and indeed has forgiven the sins of the world. That's the second meaning by that single line. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Using the passage before us, 2 Corinthians 5, and those steps of forgiveness that we just described, let's see exactly how he does that. Sort of work through it. Okay? We said, first of all, that a forgiving person feels pain. A forgiving person is emotionally honest, who doesn't downplay sin, but takes it really super seriously. It is not no big deal. It's a very big deal. Forgiving person tells the truth, okay, is raw and honest about the pain and about the cost of someone's sin, does not diminish it, it right? Doesn't downplay it. Well, we see this in tonight's text and all of the references to the cross, right? Christians know and celebrate the cross of Jesus as a place of forgiveness. It is a place where our forgiveness was indeed secured and won. But the cross of Jesus is also a place of brutal truth-telling, isn't it? It is hanging there for all the world to see. But your sins are horrific. Your sins are painful. Your actions have consequences. Forgiveness is not possible with just waving a wand. It's not like poof. And it's not like no big deal. 
Y'all, the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die. There is a cost to your sin. Somebody has got to pay. The cross of Jesus tells the truth of all of that. Right? God does not pull any punches. He is brutally honest about sin and its price. He tells the truth. Your sins hurt. They hurt this much. Right? Your sins do damage. They're costly. There's a price to pay. That's not the only thing that the cross says. Right? The cross also says that God is willing to pay your debt. He's willing to absorb your cost. Right? The wages of sin is death, God says, but I will pay the price. Right? I will pay your debt. I've got you covered. We see this in tonight's passage in various places. Verses 14, 19, and 21. It says, We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. One man, Jesus, paid sin's price for many. He he died for the, the sins of the world. Verse 19, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because, as it says in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all, on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins so we don't have to. He paid it in full. He absorbed the cost. And that is why we can walk away debt-free, payment canceled, a truly forgiven people. A truly reconciled people. Thirdly and finally, forgiveness is not just canceling of our debts, it's liberation from shame. In God's sight, we're not just sinners. We're not just murderers. He calls us forgiven. He calls us sons and daughters. He cancels our debts and he gives us a new identity. We are literally called in this passage, new creations. Not defined by our past, but now defined by our future. A future that is going to be spent with God forever. In his home. As his family. He redefines us. He redirects us. And he renews us. He gives us a new name. And he gives us a new lease on life. This brings me to our third and final point. Okay, we've said so far that Christians believe in the power and costliness of forgiveness. We've said that Christians believe that Jesus forgives the sins of the world. But thirdly and finally tonight, I want you to see that Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins. Not simply as something that's been done to us, but as something that we must also do. All that is to say, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in forgiveness as a way of life. We take it as marching orders. Look at verses 14 to 15. Okay, for the love of Christ controls us, he says at the beginning. In other words, we're abiding by a whole new operating system now. We, we are operating on a completely new system The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, 
This is the reason why. Because one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Because Jesus absorbed the cost of our sins. And because he did this, verse 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Jesus dying on a cross, his washing away our sins, his reconciling us to God, this is the seminal, defining moment of our lives. From this moment on, life is not and will never be the same. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. The love of Christ controls us. Forgiveness has changed our life. Forgiveness has changed our lives. We've been freed from sin's penalty. We've been freed from our shame. And forgiveness has now become for us a new way of living. God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself and has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been forgiven, and so we forgive. In that order. It's not that we forgive in order that we would be forgiven. We've been forgiven, and therefore we forgive. We've been reconciled, and so now we're agents of reconciliation. As seen in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Well, who or what is an ambassador? I don't know who our current ambassador is to, I don't know, such and such. I know, is it Nikki Haley is a, our ambassador to the United Nations, right? But an ambassador is a representative of a faraway country who's sent to advance the interests of his or her country in that particular place, that new place. Not only is an ambassador supposed to sort of reflect the interests of their country, but the values and the lifestyle and their, and their culture of their home. In other words, to be an ambassador for Christ is to be his representative here on earth, to, rep, to represent right, his interests, to represent his values and his lifestyle and really the culture of heaven here on earth. It's what ambassadors do. They sort of bring a little piece of home to this new place so that the people who are living in that place can sort of experience it and learn about it even as they meet that person. That's what we're supposed to be. Ambassadors of Christ in some ways sent from heaven. It's a high calling. It should make our knees shake a little bit, even as it sort of like electrifies your blood, gets you excited. It's a cool job. You know, you matter to God. He died for you. He loves you. And your choices matter too. They really do matter. What you do matters. God is working in you and he's working through you for his glory. And we glorify him. Just say we make his name great. And we make his home country of heaven stand out. To be outstanding when we, a forgiven people, forgive.
live a life that begs the question, how are you able to forgive? Just like those, those families in Charleston, after that horrific shooting, like what is going on that enables these people to be able to do something like that? That is a great question. It's because of Jesus, right? We sometimes imagine that God forgives us because we've been good. But in actuality, God makes us good by forgiving us. Forgiveness is powerful business. It changes lives. And it starts by changing ours. Let's pray.